The reviews are in, and Secrets is a hit. Listeners have described Secrets as priceless information, a personal cheat sheet, and binge-worthy career advice. And Season 3 promises to bring you even more secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to get that coin. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, put in that work to reach the top of corporate America. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance in your career. So fill up those cups and welcome to Season 3. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Secrets. Ricky, what's on your mind today, my brother? Man, KP, I was uh, kicking back in the lazy boy, you know, like like I do, man. Mm -hmm. I was uh, relaxing a little bit, wiggling toes, you know, but I had a serious morning. I was just kind of thinking about some of the most genuine and influential leaders that I came across in the last 10 years or so that I've tried to role model pieces of my own leadership style around. And I honestly just felt blessed to have so many of them in my inner circle. And more importantly, ones that I would consider to be in my personal board of directors. Yeah, PR, I, I, you know, I think about some of those influential leaders that I've had in my life as well. And it's actually pretty humbling to see your own career take off, similar to some of your role models in the corporate world. And I think we've all had those that have kind of brought us along. Mm-hmm. And it's wild when you actually see you're actually in each other's inner circles and you can rely on one e- each other professionally and sometimes even personally on various topics. Or even when you start to get invited to these special events and, and fun things like that, just kind of outside of the corporate environment to kind of build your own personal village. Yeah, KP. I mean, that is, you know, pretty wild, man. And and trying to emulate your corporate heroes moves uh, like emulating like what they do mm-hmm. is very similar to trying to copy like your favorite dancer or athletes moves when you were younger. Yeah. I mean, you would spend hours in front of the mirror or on the playground practicing those moves, sure, right? right? You know, like trying like your version, like after you saw like the American Music Awards or you watch a Soul Train oh, and yeah. then you'd be over there trying to moonwalk or pop lock and, and you, you'd like <laughs> seeing your, your uh, favorite person when you're doing like Michael Jackson, Michael, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're trying to do oh, it, yeah. you know? Or practicing like your sports moves and calling out your favorite athlete's first name, like you're trying to do a crossover or something. Remember when you used to do that, Keith? Oh yeah, Magic, Dr. J. Yeah, Kobe. Kobe. <laughs> Tiger. Yeah. Or, you know, my, my crush, Serena. Serena. <laughs> well, PR today, we have the pleasure to bring to our Secrets family an outstanding player and overall winner in corporate America. And more importantly, an advocate for the community. Uh, we're going to bring Brooke's story to mm-hmm. the virtual stage today, people. So y'all get ready. So before we break bread with our sister, uh, let me run down some brief accolades for her so you can see who we spend the time with today and also see yet another rarity in corporate America, right? AKA a unicorn. A unicorn. We bring in unicorns to season three. So Brooke is a member of the Executive Leadership Council, was recognized in 2017 in Diversity MBA's Top 100 Under 50. Mm-hmm. She was also spotlighted in Savoy Magazine as one of 2019's most influential women in corporate America. And she has held several functional VP and GM roles for some of the largest med tech organizations in the world. Mm. 
and she is currently a worldwide president for a multi-billion dollar medtech and device technology company. And she sits on the board of directors of public to trade at Sigaline Therapeutics and on the board of the Girl Scouts River Valleys. So secret listeners, we're about to bring you our sister, Brooke Story. Thank you, Keith. And thank you, Ricky. I am really thrilled to be here with you today, breaking bread. And I just can't thank you enough for having me on your program. Girl, hey, look, we just want to welcome you, Brooke. Like, this is absolutely an honor for us to speak with you today. Sharing your story is something that we will inspire, that we hope will inspire our secret listeners to get to get after it. You know, very similar to like you've done in your own career, because if there's one thing that I know about you, there is absolutely no quitting in you, girl. None. (laughs) (laughs) So, look, I'm going to uh, need everyone to buckle up today. Because this is about to get real, right? Because we are going to have some fun with you today, my sister. Yes. And in today's episode, we will talk with Brooke about her path to the top, her sponsorship journey, and some of the challenges and triumphs she faced while climbing to the top. We'll also discuss what it's like as a Black and underrepresented female leader, having to constantly prove yourself over and over and over again, only to get inconsistent credit. And we'll provide some receipts on representation levels of Black female executives in corporate America and why being intentional with your career plan is important. And we'll close out today with secrets from Brooke on what you can do to get on the executive career path and what leaders can do to build inclusive and equitable work environments for their employees. So look, let's just jump into this. Okay, Brooke, we, we've been so excited about this and we, we had a whole bunch of questions we wanted to ask you. So we're paring it down to the, to the vital few, okay? The vital few that we want to talk about. So can you just take a moment to bring our listeners up to speed on your upbringing, your educational background, and your corporate leadership journey? Just give it to us, girl. Well, Ricky, I'm going to take a minute to share my story and go way back because this part of my journey and how I came along impacted how I show up as a leader today. And it's impacted my success in corporate America. So way back, I'm going to mid-1970s. My dad took a job and uh, moved us to Irving, Texas. And my twin sister and I ended up integrating an elementary school in Irving. This is Irving before Las Colinas, for those of you who have ever been in the Dallas area. This is way back 1970s Irving. And I share this because we had experiences one would expect like being called the N-word, teachers who were racist and marking down papers where we had correct answers, parents coming up to the school and, and my parents having to get involved because we were not allowed to play with their children, certain children, just for strictly because we were Black. Um, but at the same time, we also had some phenomenal friends and some great teachers who treated us really well. Uh, we were in the Girl Scout troop at this school. My sister was the spelling bee champ. And we were bright and there were parents who were progressive for that time. And we spent the night at their houses and their kids came to my house. So it gave me a very strong understanding that you can meet individuals where they are. Some people are good people and some people are not good people. And I found that out in elementary. I finished high school in Central Jersey and had always been good in math and science and ended up with a dean from the Minority Engineering Scholarship Program at the University of Tennessee coming to my high school and really wanting to find a student who would come to UTN, major in engineering, but come back and co-op in, uh, at Bell Labs in New Jersey. And what Tennessee and Bell Labs had discovered in this partnership is that they were struggling to get students from Tennessee to come to New Jersey for the co-op because it's, it was very different at that time. The kids did not like it. And um, having 
then gone to Knoxville later, I understood (laughs) (laughs) East Tennessee and Central Jersey. It's very different. And Tennessee at that time was still working under DSEG orders at the time. So African-Americans were a very small percentage of the student body, but we were a close-knit group. Um, And the engineering program that I participated in, MESP, did a great job creating a cohort. But this is also where I found out I really had to be better. And I remember taking a thermodynamics class as a senior, and we worked in groups in this class. And the professor, Dr. Scott, I'll never forget this, starts the class off like telling the story to the class that the, the Black students in the class, there were four of us, deserved to be in the class and that we were good students and that we'd made it through the weed out courses and earlier engineering. I was a senior at this time. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? (laughs) (laughs) What is he talking about? Yeah. And I'm, and and Ricky, you know me, Keith, you as well. I don't need to be validated by someone else. So I felt it was an odd experience, but as we were asked to go get in groups on the first day of class, my uh, friends, the other three black students, they stood around me and said, Brooke, you go ask, you go to the Episcopal church with the white kids. (laughs) You have to go ask if we can be in these groups. We shouldn't just be in our own group. I agreed. I was like, sure. So I went around and asked every single group that was getting together, every all the students that were gathering, knows from every single student. And so we ended up having to form our own thermodynamic study group. And you have to turn in your papers as a group. You turn in your test as a group. Everything's done as a group. We also are participating where we don't have access to test files. So you think about like an SAE fraternity, for instance, the majority of the students were were men. At that time, Tennessee was still majority white, Uh, very few Asian students, very few black students, but we didn't have access to test files. So we just had to figure it out. Turns out we ended up with the best grades in the class. We formed our own. We had to study so much to, to be on top of it, but it worked out fine. The professor tried to tell people. And the little side note is that, you know, folks came back to me after the tests were handed out in order of worst to best. I was always getting the last of the test and asked to get in my group. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Remember, remember when you wouldn't let me in your group? <laughs> yeah. That's right. Correct. Hard pass, hard pass. So, but it was just a good experience to understand that professor was a good guy. He was trying to set the stage. And and again, this goes back to what I learned in elementary and kept having to relearn. Um, And we ended up taking action out of that and creating test files for the NSBE chapter at University of Tennessee. So students behind us could have access to all the tests we'd taken and just see problems. And that, that persisted for years. I kept hearing about, you know, my grades and Classes, some good, some not so good. (laughs) As I came out of engineering school, I I knew in my heart I didn't want to be a traditional engineer. I'd gone so far in engineering. It was a great experience for me. But I ended up going into consulting. I went to a firm at the time called Anderson Consulting that now does business as Accenture. And that was a great experience. I worked with a bunch of University of Tennessee engineers. And then I really got staffed. And then I randomly got staffed on a healthcare job. And that's how I ended up in medtech, basically. I'd, I'd spent about five years in consulting and then transitioned over to J&J in the late 90s and then ended up coming to Medtronic after that. Between J&J and Medtronic in, in the early 2000s, I was in my early 30s and I had two small get, kids, but I felt that I really needed to get an MBA to advance my career. And it was a question, given how far I'd come, I'd already gotten into manager at that point in J&J, which was a big deal, great company great experience, but but I decided to do it. So I left, I went to Michigan on the consortium fellowship, did an MBA focused on finance where I felt that was my weakest skill as a leader. And I knew it. 
and really am glad I took the time to invest in myself. And one thing I, I think people need to know is it, it wasn't a financially rewarding position after you're already in management at a big company. You're coming out about the same, but it was the best investment in my own personal development. And that MBA made the difference when I wanted to um, leave finance and then relocate to Minneapolis to join corporate development. So that was a huge investment for me and a really good thing. So, so Brooke, I got I got one comment to make. Now, I, I know you said that finance wasn't like your favorite. I mean, like your your in your mind wasn't your favorite subject. But I know personally, you can remember some damn numbers. You can figure some shit out. Somebody asked you some stuff, man. Like, and like, like, like I am not exaggerating. Boy, this girl can count your money for you for you before you know what you got in your wallet. So. How how did that come about? You being so good with numbers, but then thinking like you had to go back and get like a finance degree, you know, basically. I did. I So that's a great question, Ricky. When I first got into management at J&J, we started having all these conversations around the annual operating plan or the budget and the P&L. And I'm going to be very honest, never in my entire career had I looked at a P&L at that point. I felt completely lost. And I was trying to pick it up and learning it. But I, when I was thinking about, should I get an MBA? It was getting to the point I was going to get too old, <laughs> frankly. Not too old, but there's a real, like, you, your opportunity cost everything. But I just said, you know what? I'm going to do it for me. I'm going to move my two small children. We're going to live in campus housing. And I'm going to learn finance. And I'm going to be great at it. And I came out and took a finance director job. I was a manager. I took a finance manager job at Medtronic in Memphis. And it was it changed my career, Ricky, because I feel that to this day, I'm better equipped than a lot of general managers or presidents who haven't had time really understanding a P&L, understanding the balance sheet, understanding cash flows for a company. It was a, a great experience. Got it. OK, appreciate that. I know this girl can count y'all. <laughs> I, I, I like to do it now. It's I'm very comfortable with it. And I encourage everybody. It's it's a it's something you need to learn. It's something you need to understand as a business leader. If you want to go the general manager business leader route. And like we know women and, and people of color are woefully underrepresented in these general management roles. You, you really need to have those skills. It's a differentiator. Everybody's going to have commercial experience. If we're honest, right? Everybody's got marketing or sales or both. But do you have marketing, sales, and finance? That's a that's a different question. <laughs> True. So Medtronic let me have that opportunity. I, I uh, had considered going back to J&J, had met some folks from Medtronic, really liked the company, and went over to Medtronic uh, right after business school, spent a few years in that finance role. And then I switched in, and, and a mentor there had talked to me about it, the guy who hired me, who's phenomenal, Sean McCormick. He encouraged me to consider corporate development. He was talking about the perspective I would get in that group. And corporate development is the place where I started to understand how companies make capital allocation decisions and how the board of a publicly traded company thinks about those investments, those potential acquisitions, all of the nuances, the exposure to the senior leaders at the company. I was just a director at that time. And it was, a, again, like pivotal career experience for me. I spent years after that, spent two years doing that, and then started moving to a bunch of different roles that eventually led to the president role at Medtronic. And while I was there, I also had the opportunity to really give back and, and help people. I got a lot of help, but I also had the opportunity to work on the leadership team with the African Descent Network. With you, Ricky, and other great leaders, 
Um, and then had a, a couple of years where I got to lead that whole group. And so great experience there. And then just recently in April, joined uh, Beckton Dickinson, or BD, as the president of our integrated diagnostic solutions business. And it's the combination of three businesses with three VPGMs. One is specimen management or pre-analytical systems. If you've ever had your blood drawn at the doctor, then they've used a vacutainer and that's the business. It's the tube that's pulling the blood. And then microbiology, a business that is in the market of diagnosing infectious diseases. And then finally, molecular diagnostics and women's health and cancer, where we're focused on the fast-growing molecular diagnostic space and also the screening of sexually transmitted diseases and the diagnosis of those as well. But big businesses with great growth and a lot of fun. So that's what I'm doing these days and I'm loving it. I was truly blessed with all those experiences at Medtronic, Jeff Martha in particular, as you know, was really good to me. So I've absolutely nothing but great memories there and thankfulness for my time there. But I've also been enjoying the bigger role at BD with uh, Tom Poland and my new boss, Dave Hickey. All great guys doing great things in healthcare. But it's just it's just amazing just to hear that story and just your career trajectory. And um, as I was listening to you, I found a lot of similarities with my story because I was integrating schools at the same time you were in North Carolina. As an example, you know, I was a consortium fellow at Indiana getting my MBA in finance. In finance, so you know, so we we got a lot of similarities there. So that's that was amazing to hear. And, and, And the thing about it though is, you all aren't talking about you know, the 1800s or like the early 1900s. We're really not talking about that long ago. (laughs) You know, we're talking about integrating and we're talking about people who grew up as STEM kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I'm like? True STEM kids. You guys got finance and engineering degrees. You're like multiple degrees, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, but I also know that credentials like you have, I have, Ricky has, it, it would seem to most people that it would be a no brainer right? For leaders to kind of recognize your leadership potential early in career and really give you those P&L responsibilities instead of shoving us off into, you know, you know, support roles and things like that. And I know that hasn't been your story as well. So can you take a moment to discuss how you created your own executive development plan um, designed to provide you visibility to these leadership roles and ultimately get you to where you are now as the BU president? That's a fantastic question, Keith, because I think P&L responsibilities are sought after by everyone, Black, white, male, female, and they're hard to come by. So first of all, I just had a ton of help in, in thinking about my development plan, and I got help from everyone, Black, white, man, woman. I have a large advisory board, or Ricky, you might call it a board of directors. I think mm-hmm. I heard you say that earlier. So I'll start kind of going back. Prior to going to Minnesota, I mentioned it. I had great advice being recruited out of Ross um, to be in corporate development. I went straight into a different role in Memphis and finance, leading a team, which was a good experience. Like I felt like I needed to come in as a people leader because I'd already been a people leader previously. And I knew that I didn't want to play that game trying to convince my new company, Medtronic, that I knew how to lead people because we know that's a big hurdle too when you're going from individual contributor roles to people leader roles. And while corporate development has director roles or individual contributor roles in some cases. So I went straight into this finance role in Memphis, but then had the opportunity to go back to corporate development. When I was speaking with, once I 
was in Memphis and got the idea to what is my next step after four years, I got the informed by advisors and mentors to consider going into corp dev at that point, which was the right point in my career to do it. He just kept talking about the exposure at the company. And I, I knew it was risky because I've never done deals. Like I didn't have any deal experience. I've been a finance person, but no deal experience. For the record, everybody in corporate development at that time in Medtronic was a man. Their spouse did not work outside of the home. They were either bankers or lawyers. So basically, I wasn't the number one pick. And you didn't fit the description for a few, for, a, for quite a few reasons. No. And honestly, I mean, as somebody that's no longer with the company, I remember asking me, well, how will you do that? Because I had just had my last, my third child. And they were asking, well, how would you do that? And I, and I remember saying, like, let me and my husband worry. About it. Like, you don't ask, if you don't ask men how they're going to manage their new baby, then don't ask me. Like, I got it. I wouldn't be signing up to do the job if I couldn't figure out how to manage my life and my three children. That's my problem. And so, you know, it was just a crazy pursuit. I remember, though, again, thinking about this development plan, how did I get there? I called every single person I knew who had worked in corporate development or knew anything about it and continued to pursue it. I was 100% the second choice for the role. They wanted a banker from the West Coast. They made an offer to that banker. Um, I called enough people to find out that I was not the first choice. And I uh, I felt still pretty good about my odds. It was 2010. And um, being in finance, I knew uh, Medtronic didn't pay bankers what they were used to getting paid. And the person was got to move from the West Coast to Minnesota. So I felt like I was a good, good shot. And I remember speaking with my boss and the hiring manager saying, if your guy doesn't take the job, again, I'm feeling good about this chance. I'll take the job. And Lo and behold, the guy didn't take the job and I got the offer and it off goes my trajectory at, at Medtronic. So I stayed in that role for two years and it was it was pivotal and it was humbling. And it was humbling because it was the first time since I've been at Medtronic, I wasn't on the hypo list and I knew it. So I knew I wasn't, you know, I was learning, but it was great exposure. So fast forward two years, I leave, I go back to a business because I didn't want to do corporate debt for my career. And this black woman executive at Medtronic, I'm walking by her office and she calls me in and she says, hey, what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to do with your career? And at this point, I have three small children. I have one under two. My husband had decided to move back to Memphis to complete his PhD. I'm in Minnesota alone with the three kids, only been there 12 months, 12, 24 months, something like that. And I told her, I don't know what I want to do. I'm just, I just got this new gig over here. I'm fine with it. And she stopped me and she said, that is the dumbest answer I've ever heard. (laughs) 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 I pay forward these gems of advice I've gotten in my career. It was, I mean, she just, she was right. It was a dumb answer. I (laughs) (laughs) I just didn't, I hadn't put my head to it yet. And the reason she was asking is because she's a woman that was in the room when the decisions are being made. So she'd come out of succession planning and she heard what they thought of me. So she was trying to say, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. So it was kind of funny. And she was right. It was a dumb answer. I was also at the time, Ricky, as you know, we were just starting up the African Descent Network and I was getting on that leadership team. So I started getting advice and this is where I started getting really great insights from Jeff, Martha. And I remember talking with him about wanting to be a general manager and wanting to move up the PL responsibility ranks. And, and he was saying, well, you need to have all these other experiences to do it. You need to get commercial experience. You need to 
you know, continue to show you have the strategy chops. You need to, you know, do whatever. I don't know. What, I mean, we, there are all kinds of things I need to go do evidently. And that was 2012. And so then like, you know, eight, six, seven years later, <laughs> I got the opportunity. But my executive development plan was really agnostic to title. Okay, it was agnostic to the title. I didn't worry about when I was going to be a VP because I was taking, I'd moved from finance to corporate development to sales strategy and operations. You know, I felt like these were, it didn't matter as long as there was something that made sense on my resume. They were risky roles, but if it it filled the gap to become a VP GM, then I thought they were good roles. So I was taking that advice from different people. And a couple of years after I went back into the business, Jeff called me back and said, would you come work on the Covidian integration? And I went to my advisory board to say, what do you think? You know, this Covidian integration, big integration, I get to work for Jeff. Mixed advice. There were people that were literally like, you'll go work on this. When the integration's done, you're going to be riffed. You won't have a job. And then there are other people, predominantly white men, to be very honest, who are like, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's the biggest acquisition in that time at MedTech history. You get to work directly for Jeff. If you get Rift, go get another job. Who cares? Like, just call somebody, which again, that's how they think, right? Like, mm-hmm. I would never mm-hmm. That's right. It was great advice and it was the right advice. You have to take those risks to kind of set yourself up. And it was a great experience. So I was also excited to work directly for Jeff. I'm coming from, a director level where now I'm going to go work for the chief integration officer who's sitting on the executive committee. So phenomenal experience. I was focused on the regions. I got to spend a lot of time in Japan and in Asia working through the synergies and just great experience. So I'm still in the director ranks going through all this and have been there since two years after I joined Medtronic in 2008. So years, just so you guys are clear, like it wasn't like a straight up, it was like director, 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 director. And, and it wasn't like 18 to 24 months and then I'm moving. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was, it was uh, but I got, a, I did, I must say, I did get a lot of different looks at the director role while I was there. So I was fortunate in that respect. This is where Jeff really, from the integration forward, really showed himself as a sponsor and, you know, lined up kind of the advice and the feedback he'd given me on what I needed to have in order to get to VPGM or PL responsibilities and kind of pull me back in to lead upstream strategy for what's called neurosciences now, but it was the RTG group. And this was, you know, him kind of saying like, let's test you out on this next role. It was a great opportunity to really lay out how we're going to leverage the breadth of that portfolio, enabling, bringing together our enabling technologies uh, businesses, which is like OARM and Still Station and our spine business, which are the implants that really drive revenue and profitability for the company, for the business. So that was just a great experience. And then from there, at that point, I was a vice president. That's when I made vice president, when I went to the upstream role. So I was a, like 15 or 16. And then I went to the regional vice president of sales role where then I had to go carry the bag because there's a question around whether or not I had enough commercial experience. So go carry the bag. And it was a very low performing region for the company at that time. They handed it to me. I mean, people I quit. We were like the number like six player in spine where we should have been like one, two, or three. I mean, you know, Medtronic has a phenomenal spine portfolio. Um, but went in and, and got that exposure and that experience, made a bunch of big changes there. Um, and then that kind of earned me the right, I think, to go into the VPGM role, which really made a difference for me. So then I moved into VPGM in um, 2018 and then uh, stayed in that role for a few years. And then just, it became a president role, I think, in 19 or 20. 20. It became a president role in 20, but it was virtually 
it was similar. And then I uh, just recently left, as you know. Okay. So, so look, I mean, this is like an amazing, an amazing journey, man. Like I, I don't, quite know like some of our listeners may have to rewind some of this shit right because this is like phenomenal stuff that you're saying and to to even make it more poignant this is not something that happens you know every day we're talking about the stuff that you did some of the risk you know all of those types of things and we'll go into it in a little bit more you know detail but again i think phenomenal story the intentionality within your moves and your overall plan are like just astounding, right? Like it's, this is playing chess, you know, right here. This is absolutely what this is. So we all know that constant uphill battle within the journey can take something. It could just take something out of you as there is a a price or a cost to the success that many of us don't always get a chance to enjoy or to realize, you know, sometimes there, and you kind of spoke to it. Some of the the risks and some of the things that you had to take, like being away from uh, your husband, having to do the, you know, you know, not traditional single parent, but damn, if you're the only one there trying to get it done, (laughs) you know, it is what it is. (laughs) It is what it is. Right. Can you talk about some of the difficult moments you faced and how like you overcame them was there like a time or various moments when you felt like stepping away or just throwing in the damn towel? I think everybody goes through that at points in their life. If you keep living, as uh, we say, and I'm going to talk about both some professional kind of really rough times. And I'm going to, then I'm going to talk about personal experience and talk about both. Cause I think we can't separate the two. When you work as much as we do, if you're in these types of roles, it's, it's, it, it's all consuming and you have to want to be in this game. Um, so I'm going to start with uh, James Dallas and kind of a story he told, and I think it was 2006, but he just recently joined Medtronic's executive committee. You guys might know Bob Ryan was on the executive committee previously as the chief financial officer. And then James came in at that time, I think chief information officer, phenomenal man. And he came to Memphis and where I was located at the time. And he was talking about how there are a lot low times and high times in every person's career, and that you have to really weather those. And this is a guy that had gone to the top of several large publicly traded companies. And he was talking about there are times when you're the it person and you're on the high potential list and you're invited to everything. And, you know, everybody wants to eat lunch with you, all the executives. And and then there are times when you are not the it person and you know it and um, you have to persevere and, and deal with both. And I'm not saying that you stay no matter what at any company, because there's always a trade-off, right? Like you have to bet on yourself and know what you're worth. But you also have to, I think, have some resiliency and willingness to kind of ride through the top, the highs and the lows. So I've got one that was a big low. It was pivotal for me. I was a director in finance, had heard James speak and trying to pay it forward. And I got into a situation where I'd made a huge, huge mistake. Uh, me and my team were responsible for the financial accounting for our business. And we'd missed a big accru- accrual and we hadn't forecasted it financially. And we were such a big portion of the company at that time that it impacted the earnings per share projections for the quarter four close. So it was big. And I didn't know what had happened. I mean, I wasn't obviously at that point, I'm a director. I had teams of people that were doing this work. So I didn't really know, but I was traveling and I had a manager on my team who managed the account and called me and say, he did not feel comfortable releasing any more accrual for sales. He just couldn't release anything. And he was being asked and he felt pressured to release accrual. And 
And I was saying, which as you guys know, would mean like it would look like we have more earnings. And, you know, sometimes we did over accrue slightly and maybe you have a few million here or there you can release. But his voice told me to check something and figure it out myself. So I've been on the road to Minneapolis. I've never heard this guy this kind of rattled. And I sat down on the back of a napkin and figured out why he was so concerned. We were under accrued by $10 million and we had not forecasted it. It hadn't been booked, nothing. So I had to go ask for a post-closed journal entry. Medtronic hadn't reported and Medtronic's the company that does the right thing. So I, but it was, I mean, I was getting tortured. I wasn't used to dealing with this kind of mistake personally. I'd had great career success because I got to control everything and do everything myself. So I wasn't used to mistakes. My team had missed it. We were continuing to ask for the question to kind of book this accrual, but they were out loud questions, like very visibly questions about me as the leader, my financial acumen. This one issue, I mean, blew up. I mean, I it was driven by another leader a person who was in the controller seat at the time who felt that me and her were in competition. So this was just her having a field day. And it got to the point, I would say a weekend where I finally just had to say, I'm not doing any more analysis. I'm not taking any more of your calls. Like I'm done. We're, we have to book this accrual, stop calling me. And, and she really kind of had the nerve to, you know, act like I was being insubordinate. Just so you're clear, she was my peer. We were at the exact same level in the company. She was not my boss. But what I did was, I this is where I, I lean on my village. And I really, really hope every listener understands how important it is to be vulnerable and to ask for help when you're in the middle of it. Don't try to solve everything yourself. I called a VP of finance who's a Black woman at Medtronic who's still there. You guys can figure it out with that. She's a phenomenal person. She knew the controller of the overall company. And she really just paused me and said, first of all, made, we've made bigger mistakes. That's not, I mean, 10 million, we've made $30 million mistakes. Like you can fix that. We, we're not past the point where we can't book it. And she also really pushed me to say, you need to tell your own story. Don't let anybody else tell your story about what happened. Just be honest, say what happened and deal with it. Take responsibility. Best advice I ever got. And um, the people in Memphis were telling me point blank. I mean, there were a few allies who were just really poignant, you know, honestly telling me I would be the person they were throwing under the bus. It was <laughs> the way it was. So it was just this, I mean, I was thinking, gosh, am I got to leave Medtronic over this. I love the company. But at the time I was pregnant with my last kids. So I didn't want to leave right then because of insurance. And I'm like, Jesus. So, but it, it also was a moment of clarity, that kind of low point where I was like, you know what? First of all, I'm not going down over this. I'm going to be honest and I'm going to manage other relationships, not just listen to what people in Memphis, Tennessee are telling me first. Number two, I'm having a baby. So either when I come back, I'm either going to find something new to do because I'm not going to stay here and keep playing this game or I'm going to um, leave and go out. And that's when I started getting that advice that I talked to you earlier about earlier about corporate development. It also gave me a clue that you know, while this one person was trying to undermine me, that was not the case across the company. There's still a very favorable impression. So that was a good, good lesson in that, but that was a low time. So that's one of those times where I was like, I don't know if I can do this. But on the personal side, you know, you you touched on it earlier, Ricky. Um, I've spent an, an astounding amount of time on the road, away from my family. And there are absolutely days when I've said, am I missing too much with the kids um, and my family? But I really, really force myself to understand everything's a choice. And my mom used to say, the only thing you have to do is stay black and die. Mm -hmm. 
if we're honest, like these are all choices. And this is true for men, women, white people, black people, like everybody in corporate America at these levels, they're making these, we have to make these choices and trade-offs. And so I approach my role like that, that I'm making choices to do the jobs that I'm doing because I love it. I really love running businesses. I know in my heart, it's it's kind of a happy place for me to get in and run a business and, and do what I do. So when it's a choice, it feels okay. Mm-hmm. That's, how I, that's how I balance it. A lot of your story resonates with me being in finance. We, we've all had an accrual mistake. <laughs> we've all run into that. Or oh, we being, start saying, you, you don't know how to do accounting. That's right. You don't know how this person's leading the group. Right. I'm like, wow. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff is like, really? We going there? Yeah, now? yeah. We talking about we this now? now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going from zero to 60. You're over six that fast. That's we, right. We, we ain't talking about your mistakes that we didn't see you make. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now they want to check the calculations in your spreadsheets and all kinds of shit. It's like, really? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but hey, you know, and you mentioned a little bit of this, but Rick and I have spoken a lot about sponsorship on our on our podcast and, and allyship and how they're like a pathway um, to getting getting your seat at the table, at the proverbial table, right? And without that level of sponsorship, it would have been impossible to kind of get where we are um, today. And there's a recent report by McKinsey talking about women in the workplace, and it showed that 77% of white employees considered themselves to be allies to women of color. Yet women of color feel very differently about this, right? There was at least a 30-point gap between what white women and white people said they did and what how black women and women of color experienced it. So I'd be just curious to, to hear what your experience has been like and talk about what sponsorship has looked like for you and how it's helped your career. I will. Thank you, Keith. That's a good question. And I think I've read that survey. I don't know if my point difference is quite 30 points, but it's... Was it 29.9? It was it 29.9? It's a ballpark. So um, I say this often, and, and this is what I think we deal with in corporate America, and it's that there's a difference between ignorance and hate. Mm-hmm. There's a difference. And I see a lot of ignorance within organizations that drive these perceptions and challenges across the board. Um, And an example, and this is a dated one, is that when I started out my professional career in Central Tennessee, I was told that a partner with the firm wanted to speak with me, wanted to ride with me after customer dinner. And he was sharing that he's just so happy I joined the firm. And I believed it. I was a UT engineer. He was a UT engineer. I was staffed with all UT engineers. They were all happened to be white men, but I was getting on great projects. I mean, I had great experiences at this company. Um, but then he mentioned that he was happy the clients accepted me and that they just previously not hired black people at this particular location in the firm. So we were basically an experiment and he was really happy with that. We were working out. He was asking me to help them recruit more people, which I did go help them recruit. And I did also, you know, politely educate him that he probably shouldn't be saying that out loud. (laughs) Right. At that time, we had government contracts. And again, this is years ago. But recently, I saw it kind of come up again. And it was with this gentleman, a sales manager. And, and you, you know, I spent time in sales and he's telling me all these excuses around why this black guy that um, had been recommended wouldn't be a good fit for the role. And he was saying the surgeons won't accept him. And I felt that it was coded language. 
And I thought it was trash. And, and this is exactly why there's that 30 plus point disconnect between women of color and people who think they're allies because of exactly those types of things, because we see that happen every day. And it's not everyone in corporate America. I would never say that, but there are people who operate like that. It's one thing if you allow people of color to work in your distribution center, but are they in the commercial roles and the P&L roles that matter? Are they on track for GM? That's why there's a disconnect because of the state and the facts that we have. It's not about, you know, how many people you have. I've seen recently where a woman was saying, and this wasn't even, this was not a white woman, just so we're clear. This was another woman of color saying that there's a black woman who was acting angry or rolling her eyes, literally says these words out loud. I'm in the same meeting. So no, that was not happening, but it was coded language and it was a weapon. And, and the reason you can do that is because there's all these perceptions that have persisted across America. So it's not a corporation problem. It's not a big company problem. It's an American problem. And, and that's why there's this disconnect between people perceiving that they're allies and women of color not believing it. That's exactly why we have this disconnect. Because what I need to see to be convinced is, are you actively challenging those stereotypes when they come up about a Black woman? Are you asking for specific examples so you can understand the real context here? Are you looking holistically at the person sharing the perception? How do they benefit if this Black woman is out of the way and undermined? That's why there's a disconnect. So I've got the pleasure of being in the room and often, and that's a, that's a blessing. And I try to use my voice for good to challenge, not, not disrespectfully, because sometimes there are challenges, but to politely make sure we're asking the same questions about everybody. But I, I do wonder what happens when I'm not in the room. So I, I completely understand why there's that, you know, 30 point gap. Mm -hmm. But I just want to offer, there's a pro tip here that I want to offer, like a little secret. No, um, give it up. As you guys say, secrets. <laughs> when you aren't in the room or you suspect some of this type of stuff is happening to you and someone's undermining you or trying to talk, you know, create a narrative that you aren't good, engage help as soon as possible. And that has been a huge beneficiary to me in my career. You get help, you leverage your mentors, you, you leverage your advisory board. You have other people creating a new narrative and spreading good news about you. Because mm -hmm. if you don't, that other narrative could take hold. Still might, mm -hmm. but, but that's a pro tip. So I, I just think there are, there's really big say-do disconnects that often happen. The data shows in women, women of color, you know, we're in the front row scene. Mm -hmm. So it's it's that's where you have this disconnect. But I do have you know hope and trust. You know the other question you asked was around sponsorship, and you know I have benefited from phenomenal sponsors really in 25 years of my career, from the UT engineers who brought me into Anderson Consulting to the uh, folks I work for, a woman I work for at J and J with whom I'm still in touch, who's helped me tremendously. Always been a sounding board, kind of gave me some inside scoop when I was young in my career. And then even at Medtronic with Jeff and, and the mutual respect that we have for each other, um, our ability to tell each other the truth and ask each other questions about race, about business, about personal things, about career, how things really work. We could have those conversations. And I think if if he and I, if he wasn't willing to be a sponsor, we didn't have that sponsorship relationship, I would not, I wouldn't be where I am today in the present role I'm in today or the one I was in previously. So, I mean, there, there's absolutely people out there that are doing it and, and he's a, a great example. And it's not just me, he's done it for several people. And there's other sponsors I see both around, I saw at Medtronic and that I see now here at BD. 
So, I mean, there's there's opportunities there that you just have to find them. No, I mean, this this is great. <laughs> I mean, you're over here dropping gym after gym after gym, right? But again, I think about, you know, all of us, like we didn't really have the blueprint, you know, when we were coming into corporate America or even, even getting at this level, right? We're learning as we go, sometimes messing up along the way. And, and sometimes either we can give up on it, you know, and stop it right there or go back to a role that's maybe not so um, visible, you know, sometimes, or we can kind of keep fighting like you did and keep on claiming some of those blessings, so to speak. But can you tell our listeners what it was like when you got that first president role? You know what I mean? Like you got that first role that you, it, you, you got that awful letter. They told you, you, you saw them zeros over there. You know what I'm saying? Like, did you feel like you had arrived like what other perks did you receive by way of maybe board seats, community opportunities, or even special acknowledgement from your friends and family? I mean, like we, we want you to keep it real. Did your husband Keith give you the big piece of the chicken because you were really, really now that that sister now? You know what I'm saying? You was that chick, you know? Did you get the big piece of chicken? I'll tell you when Keith has been the most excited is in 2003 when I got the consortium fellowship and he realized he wasn't going to have to pay for me to go to B school. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yo, my brother. <laughs> 20 years ago, but that was the last time I got earrings for a uh, accomplishment. So um, <laughs> I got my first president role at Medtronic and my family really does keep me grounded. I don't get the big piece of chicken. I <laughs> <laughs> I love Chris Rock. I don't know if some of the viewers might not have heard that stand up of his when he talks about the big piece of chicken, but I love it. You know, I they keep me grounded. I um I've been incredibly blessed, right? And when I talk about my husband, I just should, should touch on that for a minute. He's he's a guy with whom I he went to college with me at University of Tennessee. He's also an engineer. He's a university professor at Fresno State, actually in California. And he does that online now, which has been a blessing, but he's just been incredibly supportive of me over the last 20 plus years, like asking him to move to Michigan when I was going to B school and kind of like, and then leaving Michigan and really starting to follow my career versus his career, right? That is a sacrifice and and that's a blessing. And um, so I don't think I would be where I am or would be able to do the things I'm doing or make these moves without like an awesome partner. And I just think, you know, black men are often underappreciated in these things and don't get their due. And he's one of those that I just want to give him his, his due. He's just been a phenomenal partner for me and, and a, a great husband. So right on Keith, right on Keith. Don't Keith right do on it. Keith. Yeah. Don't Keith do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Keith's do it. <laughs> yeah, they do, Keith. Uh, Keith's are great, Keith. Keith's great. I agree. He's a great guy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it matters though, right? Like we, there's all this misperception in the media about Black men and, and you know, it's absolutely never been my experience. So, but back to the question of what it was like for me, I, you know, I always felt like I was operating on a big level. So I, I just always felt like my role is super important. Like no matter what I'm doing, I, I always step back and say, how is my role contributing to the organization? I was super happy about it. By the time I become a VPGM, which was right prior to president, I had started to become a board observer on a company in which we'd invested. So really opened my eyes up to the value that I could bring to a board and how to operate as a board member on a 
publicly traded board type thing, not a company board versus I did a lot of nonprofit work in theaters and for my church and things like that. But I wanted to pursue it. And that board pursuit really accelerated with the announcement about my move to BD. Um, so there's a program in Minnesota prior to that that I participated in. It was made up of women directors of color who brought together a cohort of women to kind of talk about kind of preparing for the board and how you get ready to be on a board, publicly traded board, and just a really fantastic opportunity. Kim Nelson actually brought me into that. She was a former executive at General Mills. She's on several boards. So she, that was great. And then, but as I made this move, all of those former mentors and advisors, again, these are white guys, right? Like I've, I've been blessed with advice from black men, white men, white women, you know, whatever. They were the ones that reached out and just were helping me, like bringing board opportunities to me and helping me get engaged and connected with these board opportunities. And it just was unbelievable. Again, back to that secret of how important keeping up with your network and your advisory board is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Being humble, being transparent, trusting and, and trusting them with the truth about what's going on, the moves you're making professionally. It just was a huge influence for me. And so I think that's been kind of my biggest opportunity is now getting on this publicly traded board. And I love the company and their mission. And uh, so I'm really excited about it. And just just switching the gears a little bit, and this will be our last question for you. You know, with everything, you've lived in Minnesota, (laughs) obviously things that have been going on the last couple of years with George Floyd and all the social unrest. We've talked about your community advocacy and mentoring others and the board things that you do. How have you as a a Black female leader dealt with all of the stress and the trauma and all of the things that have gone on around George Floyd and how has that changed your your leadership or how you engage with your teams? You know, what have you done and how have you dealt with these challenges uh, kind of in the post George Floyd era? So I lived in Minnesota for about 10 years, and this is through the Jamar Clark murder, the Philando Castile murder, then the George Floyd murder, then the Dante Wright murder. And none of these men committed death penalty acts, period. And the idea that not complying when a knee is on your neck and you can't breathe is a reason is tragic. It's tragic for our country. It's tragic for all of us. So as I mentioned, I have a Black husband and I'm the mother to a 23-year-old Black son. And you've, you've talked about colorism on your podcast, but these are big guys and they're dark brown. And I hold my breath every single time they leave the house, every time they're pulled over. I've been in the car with them when they're pulled over. And I've seen how police often interact with Black men firsthand. And it's not every police officer. So I don't want to hear that excuse. The police are doing their job. No, but there are some who interact with us differently. And so what I think most executives and people don't seem to understand, but majority of people, is that they they don't want to understand, but our experience with the police is different from theirs, period, point blank. The police in a lot of parts of these United States were created out of the Fugitive Slave Act to go after Black people. So, you know, there's, again, this goes back to my ignorance and hate comment, right? It's hard for people in corporations to understand this and understand that our experience is so different because they're thinking, well, if you just comply, the police officer's nice, they're here to serve and protect not historically for us. And that type of stuff, when those conversations are happening at work for, for Black people in corporate America, it's exhausting. It's tiring. You're, you don't want to hear it 
because you're like I said, I'm I'm holding my breath. My anxiety is going up when my husband or my son walk out of the house. So the first thing I do is I try to be a, an ear and empathize with our black employees. So they have someone to talk to and they're not feeling like they're getting gaslit. I obviously haven't walked in everyone's shoes, but I know how frustrating it is. And I know how it can cause you to pause and lose trust in someone you're working with who thinks they're an ally when they say something stupid about a murder. And it happens all the time. So I lended, Ricky, I know you did it too, because we were we were both at the same place when that first happened. I lend an ear and I allow people to tell their truths and I don't gaslight them. And I think that is an absolute must for people in corporate America. And again, I think it's an American issue, not a corporate America issue. I think this is an American issue because, you know, no one wants to acknowledge these truths about how some police are. Again, not all police. There are police in my family. So before anybody asks a question, I don't dislike police. I don't have a problem with police. I have a problem with it being acceptable to kill men who aren't complying and aren't causing a threat. If someone's on their, on their stomach with their hands behind their back, they can't hurt you, Mr. Police Officer. You don't have to kill them. Yeah, okay. hey, hey, we we hear you. you. You know we get emotional about this. You look, you and I have had some very conversations about this. You know, like we were right. literally in tears talking to each other about it. You know, like so. So we we get it, sister. We absolutely it's get it. Just, yeah, you guys got me going on that one. But it, I mean, at the end of the day, the other thing I think you do, Ricky. I do. You do, Keith. This is important. I have to speak truth to power when I'm in the room. I, I, as a president at these large companies, I've really been blessed to work in places that are open to hearing it, to hearing my feedback and perspective, and I share it. I think education is really the key to our democracy and our system of capitalism. So I think it's worth preserving. So if we don't shed light on these facts about how we got to where we are and what's going on out here, we're not going to progress. So it's okay to have that open dialogue about race. That Again, nobody's a victim here. I'm not a victim. I'm not calling, I'm, I don't dislike police. That's not true. I dislike people who kill people who are, you know, handcuffed. I got a problem with that. So it's okay <laughs> for me to agree to disagree with someone who doesn't see it that way. And, uh, but I'm also gonna use my voice when I'm in the room because I think that executives need to understand that. When a black employee is working for someone who's carrying on about compliance, when, when a man's been murdered and it was videotaped from beginning to end, that's a problem. Look, Brooke, I, I hear you, man. Keith over here, we getting fired up. We, we, you know, like this is this is why we having this conversation. This is why we breaking bread. This is why I got like got this drink in my hand right now because I, I need a little uh, woosah, you know, over here. Right. But I, I think sometimes when our listeners hear us, they think we just making shit up. You know what I mean? They think we're just being over dramatic or this, that, and the other. This is the section of the show well, we hit them with these receipts because if it wasn't happening, we would not have a podcast. We would not have anything to That's talk right. about, but it is true. So, Keith, why don't you just hit us with some of these receipts? Man? Yeah, and today we're going to show you and prove to you yet again, <laughs> <laughs> Brooke is a unicorn. And we've had lots of unicorns on our podcast this year. And we'll share some receipts on Black executive representation at the top. And we'll share some receipts on the disparities and promotional opportunities that continue to plague Black women. Ricky, why don't you hit him with the first receipt? Yeah, the first receipt here. And look, it's a whole bunch of receipts, but we're going to just give you a few. You That's know right. what I'm saying? Right. So a, re uh, a recent report by CBS showed that Black professionals make up just 3.2% of all executive 
or senior leadership roles, which are identified as within two reporting levels of the CEO, according to the U.S. Equal Opportunity Commission, and among Fortune 500 companies, less than 0.8% of CEOs are black. Okay. I mean, we we, we starting to unpack this now. Keith, what's receipt number two? Number two, for for a recent State of Black Women in Corporate America report by LeanIn.org and McKinsey, Black women comprise 7.4% of the U.S. population, yet only occupy 1.6% of VP level roles and 1.4% of C-suite roles. And most of those senior leadership roles are in support positions such as HR or diversity or legal. Very few hold P&L responsibility, such as a president or a CFO that like Brooke has held, for example. And we know that those P&L roles, that's the pathway to becoming a CEO. So the, the crazy part about that whole re, uh, that whole um, receipt there to me is 1.4 percent of C-suite roles are held by uh, by women. Mm-hmm. OK, black women. by black women. And the majority of those. Right. Or not even P and L roles. Oh no! <laughs> so we're saying, so we're saying less than one percent. That's right. You know, at this point, Brooke and I may be able to, if we combined our list, we could probably come up with the list of BU presidents and CFOs. <laughs> y'all probably know black, black, right? Yeah, y'all, y'all probably know them. Yeah, yeah Ricky, me and Keith, we pretty much know all the black. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I we hear all you. know each other. It's not yeah. a big group. I right. hate that. I hate that. I hate that to be true. You know, I hate that to be true, but it is. Receipt number three, according to the 2021 McKinsey and Company Women in the Workplace report, Black women are facing disproportionately high barriers in the workplace. They are heavily impacted by bias in hiring and promotions. Black women are promoted at a lower rate than white women at the first step up to manager. And more than a quarter of Black women say their race has led to them missing out on an opportunity to advance. They experience more microaggressions than other groups of women and are three to four times as likely as white women to be subjected to disrespectful and othering comments and behavior. They are also likely to report that their managers check in on their well-being or help them balance priorities and deadlines. So it's a whole lot of slick shit and micro shit happening Mm -hmm. behind the scenes Mm -hmm. that we just can't account for. So we just call it othering. We just call it othering. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But we're talking about the level of support that, yeah. that, that that happens for everybody who ain't black. Right. And we need that level of support in order to move ahead. Because, again, we're first generation, a lot of us, and navigating all that stuff, we don't have the roadmap. And, and look, I, I, I know people probably get sick of me bringing it up all the time, but I, I, it comes back to what Brother Malcolm X said back in the day, that the black woman is the most disrespected being. Yes. <laughs> I mean... The yeah. brother been dead for how long and the comment is still true? <laughs> like, really, really? 50 years, 50 years. And that same state of the Black woman in Corporate America report said that for every 100 men who are promoted the manager, only 58 Black women are promoted, despite the fact that Black women ask for promotions at the same rate as men. Mm. And also for every 100 men hired into manager roles, only 64 Black women are hired. That means that every level in the organization, there are fewer black women to even promote 
to every subsequent level within the organization. And that representation gap gets wider and wider every step that you go on the rung of the corporate ladder. So so we're over here pretending like it's really hard and it's difficult and right. we got to try to figure it out. We, mm-hmm. We've been talking for a few minutes here. Right. We didn't already figure shit out. Right. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, how hard is it really, you know, at the end of the day, just to do it? And look, our final receipt, you know, of the day. And just to put a cherry on the top of these these receipts here, Keith, because now mm-hmm. remember, we had a whole bunch of them. We, we just we just we just deduced it to this many to five. Right. That lean in report also points out that women of color and black women in particular tend to receive less support and encouragement from their managers compared to white women. Black women are less likely to have managers showcase their work, advocate for new opportunities for them, or give them opportunities to manage people and projects. Black women are also less likely to report their manager helps them navigate organizational politics, a balance work and personal life. Boom. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, seriously. So, so look, I mean, th- these are the, these are the receipts. Like I can't, I, like, and, and what we always say is I can't make shit up. That's right. Okay. Like at the end of the day, I didn't write the, the article and lean in. I don't work for McKinsey. <laughs> right. Like I'm telling you what they put out there. So look, I think it's time for us to now just, we, we, we've talked about what it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's not switch or navigate into some of these secrets for yeah. us. And since we have our sister on the show today, we have a special dose of secrets for you today. So we want to give Brooke an opportunity to tell you from her perspective about the importance of intentionality with respect to your own executive development. And number two, how maintaining your professional brand can elevate and accelerate your career. Mm-hmm. So, Brooke, let's start with our first secret for our listeners. Why do you believe having intentionality with your own executive development is so crucial to your career and your success? Yeah, I mean, I think developing your plan is your first step. And you have to be honest with yourself about what you want and what you are willing to do. This applies to everyone, men, women, black, white. To climb the corporate ladder, there are going to be some sacrifices you'll have to make on the weekends, in the evenings, traveling, et cetera. We talked about it. And if you don't want to do it or aren't willing to do it, just be honest with yourself. It's true. You guys have talked about it on some of your podcasts previously about what's required. Also, once you've got your plan figured out, begin working your plan and getting advice about your moves along the way. It's okay to make adjustments and to take a variety of roles. It doesn't have to be rigid because if you're too rigid, you may block a blessing. So work your plan, but don't be too rigid. It is the most important thing you can do, though, is to work your plan and to be asking and talking about what you want. Putting yourself into risky roles, betting on yourself, it's part of this plan. You have to do it and you have to be able to step into what you want to be. Woo. Mm. Now, now, boy, now, I like think, that last part. Hey, <laughs> think about how dangerous we would have been had we gotten this information like early. And, and, and the crazy part about it is as underrepresented employees, BIPOC employees, whatever you want to want to categorize it as. We're learning this after the fact, after mm-hmm. we've done a lot of things where the dominant, you know, people in corporate America, they've been growing up with this stuff. It's growing in their up. DNA. It's in the DNA. A lot of times they ain't even got to ask to take a risk. It's they, just, they're just giving the benefit of the doubt, you right. know? So look, Brooke, outstanding advice. I sure I uh, wish I would have received that earlier in my career, as we talked about. But this brings uh, us to our final secret for today. Can you talk about 
how maintaining your professional brand can elevate and accelerate your career. I will absolutely talk about that. I'm going to give two secrets. I'm going to start with the brand and then I'm going to give a final secret. And I've kind of hinted to it along the way here. But first off, from a brand perspective, I'm an authentic leader and I'm known for that, for my authenticity. So I have to be who I am. No one can beat me at being Brooke. It's true. I've got to be me. And and no one, and I hope everybody has that sense of self and that willingness to do that. I think that's incredibly important as a leader and it drives your brand. From a brand perspective, I'm always prepared. I'm prepared when I'm speaking, whether it's in a meeting at the office, whether it's at a board event, whether it's for a Congress or a conference, I'm prepared. I take it seriously in all forums. I spend as much time preparing as I need to feel confident and comfortable in what I'm talking about because I think it matters. I don't overreact to feedback. And this was a lesson I had to learn because I used to overreact. And in my early career, I wanted to debate every little bit of negative feedback I got and argue. And then I was the angry black woman or I had an attitude. And you guys know the story there. You've talked about it. But as I've matured and gotten advice as I've come along, I recognized like this negative feedback, it's really just an insight on how I'm being perceived. And that gives me the power to address that perception. And two key responses that I want you and your listeners to remember is when you're getting crazy feedback that is an absolute lie, it can be a lie. The two, the best responses are either number one, thank you. Number two, good to know. And good to know is my favorite because it's not saying you agree, but what you're saying is good to know what that person thinks of you. Yep. That's a little bit of, that's a little secret. I want everybody to just get that in your vernacular. Good to know. I love know. it. I love it. Both good of those. Both of those, me and my friends, we call those decent white woman responses. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, Thank you. Good to know. Because because we know because we know people are never short on feedback. That's right. Correct, correct. Exactly <laughs> like that. And and you, but you really want it because if people don't, if you don't get the feedback, you can't manage the perception. So you actually want to know what people really think. So it's it's a, it's an it's a balance. But the final thing I want to say from a secret perspective, and I've touched on it and you've seen it throughout my 25-year career, is engage with your network regularly. Do not just put your head down and, and just do your work. Engage with your, your network. Use the manners your mother taught you. Write thank you notes. When you get help from an advisor or a mentor, reach out. Reciprocate help for your network as you you lift as you rise. You lift as you rise. And that is not limited to Black people lifting Black people or white people only lifting white people. You reciprocate. When people are helping you, you help too. So those things, I think it pays dividends. And I think, you know, you show up, you have to show up every day as the leader you want to be. So it doesn't have to be fake and phony. Um, But if you want to be a business leader, be about business and be focused on that. Mm, mm, mm. I'm just going, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, I would drop this mic, but I don't know, but I don't want to have to buy another one. Right. You know what That's I'm right. saying? But man, woo, I'm no, trying to tell you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, literally, I mean, when we're talking about, you know, them thank you notes, we're talking about, you know, reciprocity, all of that type of stuff, like giving back. Like, I mean, I, I just think it's, it's, it's superb advice and no matter what level you are, these are things that we just aren't good at. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we don't do the. I can't tell you how many times I didn't heard my wife say, man, I done sent that kid a, a graduation card. I done sent that kid a birthday card. And they didn't even have the decency to say thank you. And, and it, like, or to send me, like, just to send me a text or something like that. 
And it may sound petty, but it's DNA building, right? It's muscle building. If you don't get in the habit of doing that at a young age or you instilling that into your, your, your children, you know, into sending those cards, then you don't do that when people are helping you along the way in corporate America either. So, you know, may some it may go over some people's heads, but all I'm going to say is make sure you understand this is not guaranteed. This is not, you don't have to have it. And your wife is right. Please teach your children to write thank you cards too. I mean, seriously, because they're going to step into a game and they're not going to even know what's going on if they're not, if they're not having those basics. So that's a great example. And all of this has been such amazing advice today, Brooke. And I know that our listeners are going to benefit for a lot of the gems that you were dropping today. So we really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Ricky. I really enjoyed my time with you all laughing and talking about our experiences. So I I, um, appreciate you guys and appreciate your listeners too. Thanks. And if you want to find more resources about what we've talked about today with Brooke, you can find more information on the secrets and receipts that we shared today. Go to our website, secrets.com. Look in those show notes for more information. And Brooke, I add my personal thank you to you as well. We absolutely appreciate you being a supportive secrets, and more importantly, part of our village. And personally, my personal board of directors, one of those members there. I mean, I also want to give a very, very gracious shout out to all of our listeners and fans out there. And you would be amazed, Miss Brooke, how many people have said, man, y'all need to get Brooke on the show, man. Y'all need to get Brooke on the show. So look, I just want to make sure that that our listeners understand we listen to you and we got Brooke on the show. Okay. And as we we knew, she wasn't going to uh, disappoint, you know, any of us, because again, without, you know, the support from you all as, as, as fans and you being able to stand up and support us with open arms, this would not be possible. Lastly, I want to make sure that everyone goes out there and writes a review on Apple. We read them, okay? We read them, and uh, and we we laugh when we read some of them because we try to figure out who wrote what sometimes. You know what I mean? So I think it's it's extremely humbling to see how many people we're actually able, you know, to touch, you know, out there. So we really appreciate that. And and the last thing I'll say is buy some of that merchandise. In fact. Take a picture with you in that gear and post it on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter, right? Tag us, you know, on that stuff. There may be a little gift coming for those of you who do that. So I'm not saying what it is. We want to see what you do first. You know what I mean? (laughs) But again, I'm getting pictures all the time of you guys with your gear on. And hey, I'm all geared up and this, that, and the other. We got new gear coming to the shop real, real soon. Keep it fresh. Keep it fresh. And as you always know, we like to clown and have a lot of fun on this podcast, but also bringing some serious messages also. And we're really focused on helping you get that coin, get your seat at the table, be the next Brooke story. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So please check us out. We have coaching services. That's how we spend our weekend is coaching people, giving advice outside of recording these podcasts and having a little fun. Uh, We do do that for you. And we have some online courses coming for you soon. Yeah. So look, we're trying to help you get that paper, like he said, but we want to thank our sister Brooke Story once again for breaking bread with us in such an authentic way um, that only she can do. Okay. That is, that is Brooke Story. That's my sister. That's who I know. And you got to be prepared. If you call Brooke and ask her for something, she's going to tell you that she's going to tell you the truth. (laughs) She's going to tell you the truth. You better have some time. She's going to, she's going to tell you the truth. Don't be trying to put her on hold. She's going to tell you that shit. And if she and 
inspires you like she does me and Keith, then let's all refill our cups because this shit is low right now. And we just got to keep on keeping on, baby. So thank you so much for listening to Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Take care, everybody. Peace. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed yet another gem from KP and PR. In fact, one listener said that Secrets makes me smarter every time I listen. And we hope you agree. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please subscribe to our podcast, share with friends, and donate via Patreon. Check us out on the web at www.secrets.com. That's www.c-crets.com to get more information about our secret services. Until next time, cheers! Cheers!